Hi, entrepreneurs. It's Steph here, and I want to be sure you've had the opportunity to reserve your ticket to our Entrepreneurs Founders Weekend for our Wealth and Wellness Retreat presented by Chase Inc. We will be hosting our event at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando, Florida from May 3rd to May 5th, and you are definitely going to want to be there with us. This is going to be your opportunity to build relationships with some of the most powerful women in business. And I can share with you firsthand that the best business relationships are formed when we really get together in person. And I just know so much business magic is going to happen when we're all together. From educational panels, networking activities to wellness activations, inspiring keynotes and breakout sessions. This is going to be a weekend you are not going to want to miss. So you can reserve your ticket today over at entrepreneurista.com forward slash founders weekend. We only have a few tickets left, so be sure that you reserve yours today. That's entrepreneurista.com forward slash founders weekend. I cannot wait to see you there. We're a very fast market business. We're going to launch like 400, we launch 400 products plus a year. And so we are quick to market. And so the commercial side of like doing the ethics is like hard because you need your inventory tomorrow. And that's hard to like balance it off. So it's trying to have the right program and the sweet spot. So I'm not overextended on inventory and that impacts your cash flow and like making good decisions when you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. So it is a bit of a gamble. Heather Deeth is the North America buying manager at Lush Fresh Handmade Cosmetics, and she heads up ethical buying. But how did her unusual path from growing up in farming communities and working in the shipping industry to joining a Canadian chocolate startup, then managing operations for a big skincare brand in Canada, prepare her for the massive scope of how Lush has grown, involving 400 raw materials and thousands of packaging items, all while maintaining an ethical supply chain and giving attention to the social impact of that sourcing. Coming up, an interview with Heather, recorded on location at the National Retail Federation Big Show in New York. And you'll hear about the challenges of launching as many as 400 products each year, the strict conditions of determining vendors and cosmetics, including prohibiting animal testing, the tough decisions of reconciling business needs while staying true to ethical buying, a special fund devoted to systematically shifting agriculture through regenerative sites, and Heather's memorable pilgrimages with her child in tow. This is the Entrepreneurista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have, with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women executives or intrapreneistas are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters. No limits. And plenty of surprises. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So you joined Lush Cosmetics over nine years ago now, and you're the head of ethical buying. Can you share a little bit about your background prior to joining the company and how your role has evolved over the years? I went to college for business, um, and then I started my career in the shipping industry, which is vastly like not very glamorous, but when you're desperate for a job, you take a job. And What were you doing in the shipping industry? I was a logistics analyst for the largest container shipping company wow. at the time. 
which you would never guess now that I did that. <laughs> what but was it, the name of that company? Marisk, Danish company. But that also got me traveling around the world and meeting different people and sharing that experience. And that was my first job out of college, and that was quite like formative of like, okay, that's not what I want to do. I need to go back and, you know, what else is there? And so I quit my good paying job, which my parents were moderately horrified about <laughs> and went to Canada's first fair trade organic chocolate company. And I was employee number seven. We were just a startup. We didn't have any money. You had to wear all the hats. I was treasurer on the board of directors and I started off doing production and buying boxes to moving up to doing international producer relationships and getting to know what cocoa farms are like in the struggle of farming internationally. At that kind of post-college era, I worked, grew up in farming communities like prior to that all my childhood I grew up in farming communities. So I like to think that's a formative experience as well. But that was really when I, you know, in my career got into international recruitment working with farmers. And it's I've always had the lens of being a buyer because at the heart of it that's I've been in supply chain management and purchasing for a long time. So I worked at uh, La Siembra Cooperative for five years and then 2009 hit and that was just such a tough time for all businesses all over the place and that was a tough year and you know our company no one wanted to buy luxury chocolate at the time that was a really it was hard for everyone um, but our company uh, downsized and eventually I decided to it would be helpful to go as well and took six months off and then I switched I always like to say I work for products that are good for me. So now I've worked in the chocolate business (laughs) and then I switched to cosmetics. And so I worked at Dermalogica, ran Canadian operations for Dermalogica Canada. And then the thing I missed about with Dermalogica, because it's a great company and great products, was the ethical side of things and really working with farmers. And so when the job at Lush came up, it really felt like the perfect fit for me. Did they find you or you found the role? I can't remember. It was a very long interview process. I think I I was headhunted in in the in the end, but it really was like a perfect match. And how long have you been at Lush now? We count our like tenure at Lush by Christmases. Um, how many Christmases you survive? And so that was my tenth Christmas in 2019. And what attracted you to joining Lush? I know you were looking for uh, an opportunity to um, work with farmers again, but what else attracted you to the company? Lush runs a really great platform based on values and I really align, like I love great skincare and cosmetics. I actually really love that industry and the beauty industry. And one of the beautiful things about Lush that I really identify with is that Lush is non-prescriptive. And so it's not about like, oh, you're, you look tired and you have some sunspots over here. Let's see what we can do to fix that. It's all about like, how do you want to feel? What is, what's, it's much deeper on a deeper level than that. And I really appreciate that in the cosmetics and beauty world. I think that stands for a lot. And so I think from a philosophical perspective, everything that the brand stands for, from the non-animal testing to ethical buying, like there's so much value as alignment there that it was very compelling for me to want to spend my time. And I, and it continues to do that. And Lush was a small business at the time and we were very, we were very entrepreneurial and it's just been a wild ride as the business has grown and, like, stabilized. How have your responsibilities changed over time? 
I started off when I first came into Lush, I was like in charge of like managing the inventory and getting really getting our ethical buying program um, up and running. And there were like, we always had like great buyers on the team who really know who've been doing incredible work in post-consumer recycled plastic usage. We've been doing 100% post-consumer recycled plastics for 10 years in our packaging and plastics and paper. And that was just kind of churning along. Um, I came in to get the inventory under control and deal with some of the financials and then slowly started to blow out the ethical buying program around like changing our cocoa program. How do we really deliver ethical ingredients to the factories and working on those supply chains? And so it's kind of box by box and ingredient by ingredient and industry by industry that you had to like make progress. And we buy a huge scope of ingredients and there's like a top, we have top spends, obviously like cocoa and black pots and citric acid and sodium bicarbonate and jojoba oil and I can keep going. There are so many, um, but it's like over 400 different raw materials and thousands of packaging items. So this, the scope in which we work under is huge. The work is like never done. Charting the course in ethical supply chain, there's no textbook to go read. And there's a lot of great brands out there doing great work around reduce, looking at social impacts, like the way we look at supply chains and the people that are behind them, sometimes we forget that there are so many people and labor is a supply chain in itself and where does it come from? And then we're really drilling back to most things that are in our house or on our bodies or that we eat come from the earth somewhere. And so it's going back to really understand where that came from. What are some of the accomplishments you're most proud of that you've uh, been able to execute in your time at Lush? We rolled out the Sustainable Lush Fund six years ago, which we started taking 2% of all of our spend on raw materials. So anything that we purchased, we would just take 2% of that as a business. The business made this decision to put that aside and I could do producer development um, with that money. And what it ended up funding was a lot of our farms. We have four major farming regenerative agriculture sites that we work on in Guatemala, in Peru, in Uganda, and in Arizona, around really shifting agriculture and doing it in a way that has a solid business case behind it, not some like charity fund project. We vet these like business plans all the time. And that, that's what we're trying to do, like systematic change over the long term in agriculture. I think that works really powerful. And we're a beauty company. Like, it's not like I, I don't have a degree in agriculture or anything because at the end of the day, I'm a buyer. So it has to make sense from a supply chain perspective for us to do that. And so that's like the, that work is like really cool, I think, and really powerful. And so I would say I'm really proud of that. But I, I would say I'm really proud of the work my team has done in like growing and evolving. And because we work in so many different areas and I I have the like, great honor of working with some incredibly talented people. What goes into your decision-making when you're deciding, you know, who, which vendor to work with? So the first thing at Lush is always our non-animal testing policy. We run the strictest policy in cosmetics. So actually that screens out a lot of suppliers. Um, first off, because if you won't sign off on our policy, we won't work with you. We won't even accept a sample from you and then actually that first sweep of screening removes a lot of players um, and then we go back and look at you have to get to know an ingredient or an item and like and then look at like oh what's the social impact who are the people there 
where do they, what country does it come from? What are the working conditions? What are the risks? What are the potential risks? And like kind of just start reaching out and having a look at what we're, because we buy from so many countries all over the world and we get trained externally. We, you know, we know how to ask in like a friendly way to hopefully get some truth. And then we often do visits and that's where you have a really good look at the social side. And then on the environmental side, a lot has to do with how an ingredient is grown. Like you can have cocoa that's grown either in full sun or full shade. And cocoa can be a wonderful addition in a rainforest setting. We buy a tremendous number of like forest products, which are non-timber forest products, which are ingredients that can be wild harvested out of a pristine ecosystem, puts value into communities. And... And then, we, and then we buy it and they don't need to chop down their trees. And so there's so many stories like that of like, what do we look at and who can we work with? So it's how many, who's out there where there are as few middle parties as possible. How direct a source can we get is often the question. Who's willing to share the most amount of information with us and to tell us what's really going on? From an outsider's perspective, and because I don't know a lot about um, what it is that you do, uh, it sounds like it, could, it might be hard to, to find uh, these resources or these places that are sustainable, fit your criteria. How big is your team and, and how long does it take to, to find um, new ingredients? We're fairly fast to market. I have a team of like seven buyers and a different team for operations. And so we have a dedicated team of people who are doing strategic sourcing. And I have financial analysts who help us build the business case and look at the numbers and look at the volumes. It is challenging. And sometimes you feel like there are no good options. And sometimes those moments are hard because at the end of the day, I have to keep two factories. I don't actually have a choice what we buy and I have to keep two factories operating. And when we run out of materials, I hear about it because there's still an operational component of, I can't shut down a factory if they don't have materials. We have to be able to deliver. And sometimes things, you want to work with these beautiful sources and communities that are doing wonderful things around wonderful projects, but they can't execute a supply chain properly. It means I can't, they can't ship a container on time, and so I don't get it, or the quality is bad. Or we, I have all sorts of stories of beautiful sources and you get phone calls and you want to help everyone because economic trade does lift people out of poverty. Like we, that is like a fact. And you want to be able to help everyone, but you can't because there has, you can't air freight everything out of Africa. You just can't. That's, there's, that's not sustainable to do that. It's inflating a business that otherwise is not, there's not enough margin because we're absorbing a margin that we couldn't. Right. Additional costs that we shouldn't have to incur. And so I think that is the hardest thing for me is, is that you would love to help so many more people and you know hopefully our brand keeps growing and we can keep going out and having positive impact and helping more farmers that that would be really you know useful for us because sometimes it is hard even when we're out in the field sometimes we're with producer groups and they're like oh when are you growing how much more can you take i want to sell you more because they're just trying they're just trying to promote their businesses too and, and stay ahead and again for them promoting their business is you know, putting their kids through school or paying a medical bill or, you know, helping them out a little bit. So it's like a different, you know, sometimes I think we're very comfortable in North America. You know, we, we live in privilege that we have basic uh, things that will hold us together. We're in different communities around the world. That's not the case. 
What would you say is the most challenging aspect of your role? I think it's always managing the business. We're a very fast to market business. We're going to launch like 400, we launch 400 products plus a year. And so we are quick to market. And so the commercial side of like doing the ethics is like hard because you need your inventory tomorrow. And that's hard to like balance it off. So it's trying to have the right program and the sweet spot. So I'm not overextended on inventory and that impacts your cash flow. Um, and like making good decisions when you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. So it is a bit of a gamble. Um, I think the, I think that's the hardest part is like balancing off like the commercial success and the ethical, ethical buying side. But I think more increasingly we see like that merging in business of like, no, there's actually an acceptance that we actually have to do it a certain way and that we can be better and make improvements to versus the same way we used to run really traditional supply chains. We can't run just-in-time supply chains on a lot of our items. We have to sit on inventory. 400 new products a year. That is a lot of products to, to bring to market. How Was it always that way, or is this just new in the past couple of years they were able to launch that many products each year? I think in my tenure at Lush, we launched between 200 and 400 products a year. Wow. Lush is a very innovative business. Coming up? Why the tough decisions of reconciling business needs with staying true to ethical buying can ultimately result in conflict. Hey, entrepreneurs, it's Steph here. As a founder, or really as a woman in business who is creating their own success, whether you're just starting a business or you're scaling it, dealing with finances and money can often feel very overwhelming and intimidating. We have all been there. But according to fellow entrepreneurista and personal finance expert, Barnoosh Tarabi, that fear can surprisingly be very helpful for your future success and wealth. Barnoosh is the host of the So Money podcast and the author of the best-selling book, A Healthy State of Panic. She gets candid about all things finance with leading business experts every Friday on her podcast. And she dives deeper into the nine biggest fears that hold us back both professionally and personally in her latest book, including rejection, loneliness, fear of missing out and failure to name a few. She offers a wealth of knowledge and tackles the relatable feelings we all experience about money. So you are definitely going to want to subscribe to her podcast. And if you want to meet Farnoosh live and in person, be sure to join us at our Entrepreneurista Founders Weekend event from May 3rd to May 5th at the Ritz-Carlton in Orlando. Farnoosh will be speaking and she cannot wait to connect with you. You can reserve your ticket at entrepreneurista.com forward slash founders weekend and we will see you there. What has been the hardest decision that you've had to make? The hardest decision is always reconciling the business needs with the ethical buying component. We launched so many new products right now. There's so many new products in the pipe and the innovation is like really great. It's what people come to our brand for because they know that we are a brand and we have all these ethical values and I have to deliver materials into the factory in a good way. And so sometimes you have to make a call of are all ingredients like perfect to the highest ethical standard? Like most of the time, 100%. And other times, it's hard when you're doing a one-off buy and it's being a one-time purchase. You want to just make sure it's good. And I think reconciling that everything is on a continuum and not to 
shoot for perfect every time because when you're doing really ethical buying those are like long-term relationships that we're building over time and sometimes it gets hard when we're really fast to market to reconcile those two things as a business and I don't think it's a problem it's more of an opportunity but sometimes internally like you have a bit of conflict around that how do you think the beauty industry has evolved over the past 10 years in regards to sustainability I think there's a long ways to go still, but the fact that we are talking about the use of palm oil, the fact that there's this huge conversation around mica and the origins of mica and the associated child labor of that, palm oil with the environmental destruction that it causes um, all over the world. I think those conversations are all really positive. There's also the dialogue around packaging. You know, We're seeing that across all industries, but for people to really think about beauty um, I think there's something on formulation that's really changed around formulations becoming cleaner and like less toxic. And I think that's all very, very positive. I think there's still a ways to go around. Again, it's one of those things of like effective things sometimes doesn't mean good for you mm-hmm. or good for your body or good for your skin, but very effective. Um, so I think there's still like the challenge around that in the beauty industry. Um, and I think there's something around inclusiveness. This is my, from a personal standpoint, I think there's something around inclusivity and aging and how women feel about our bodies. And like, as we reconcile this and move forward, I'm like really interested in that dialogue within beauty that like mm-hmm. we are beautiful women as we are. Mm-hmm. And we don't need, we are, we don't need beauty products. We're just great and gorgeous. I agree. I mean, for me personally, I used to just put anything on my skin. I never thought about anything. I used whatever ingredients were in any makeup bottle I'd buy at Sephora. And now over the past few years, just through going through my own experiences and fertility issues, I look at everything now and only want to put on natural ingredients and use products that I know are safe. So I know it's not just me. I'm having these conversations with so many people and that's clearly one of the reasons why your business has continued to, to grow and grow over the years. I think so. People do care, and we should care what's in our, in our homes. It's a big deal now. Yeah. They, to explain why there's so much toxicity out there in the environment, we have to like look. We have to be mindful and careful what we put on our bodies. Yeah. Skin's your biggest organ. Yep. We have to take care of it. I want to learn more about how you've grown your team since you started at Lush, uh, what are the qualities that you look for when you're hiring someone? It is being able to really flow. For the most part in ethical buying, we hire people with experience. Um, I need buyers at the end of the the day. So when it comes to like going and doing negotiations and looking after the supply chain and making sure a supplier um, can supply us and someone who's willing to go and have hard conversations, but also someone who is quite thoughtful And one of the biggest challenges is that there's no, like, yes, there's a right and a wrong on many issues. Like, you shouldn't have the worst forms of child labor exist in your supply chain, but it is, everything is nuanced, and there's a lot of details to understand. And we always have to check our privilege that we come in, you know, we grow up in a certain way, and we expect things to be a certain way, and it's not like that when you're traveling around the world and you're in really poor communities and people are really desperate for any sort of, income to feed themselves and so I think they're having people who really understand that and can work 
can be okay with the discomfort of like talking it through and for people to have the humility to never know that we never know all the answers is like my biggest ask of my people and because we debate a lot internally because otherwise you, you kind of internalize it a little bit of like what is better is this good we, we have to be able to handle the conflict of like talking it out together and not always feeling like we have to be right but that we can like see a path forward are there specific interview questions that you always ask in your hiring process I haven't hired an ethical buyer in a f- few years because my team is quite tenured but it's always having one thing I like to ask is people just to talk through you can pick a random I'm always start off with just giving all my secrets away but <laughs> pick, pick that's a what we here for <laughs> pick here. a lush in, what's your favorite lush product what do you think the top ingredient in that product is where do you think it comes from? What do you think the ethical issues related to that ingredient may be? So say if you pick ocean salt, which is our, one of our best-selling products in North America. So take salt. Most of the salt industry in North America is owned by big multinational corporations that will not sign our non-animal testing policy. Salt can be hugely destructive. It can be mined. It's there's no traceability. It's a big commodity. It has. It's a very. It's very cheap. It's low in price. We have quality issues all the time that it doesn't fit our specifications going into the factory. And so now we. It took years to build, but now we have a direct supply chain, out of, Mexico, moving salt, doing income diversification for farming, for fishing communities. Sorry. That provides salt to into our products and those and so for people to like think through those challenges because there's no like you're not you can't just go online and google like what ethical problems are there in salt yeah. and like salt is one ingredient out of like the many many things we buy and, and like so many ingredients now have issues around it and there's a lot of issues with migrant labor slave labor child labor that is the state of labor in the world is really bad and so that is one thing we're very cognizant of in how we engage and and who's working on the ingredients so the most important thing is like what's the logic and like following it through and being really curious so that's always like the defining moment is how curious can you be about something because there's so much to learn about everything always you know so much about things that the average person knows nothing about with this knowledge, how do you decide in, you know, outside of your work life, what products to, to buy for yourself, your family? I feel like, you know, ignorance might be bliss now that you know all of these things and where things come from. How do you even decide what's good and what's not in, in um, the choices that you make outside of Lush? I use a lot of Lush products, I will admit. I'm a pretty good diehard Lushy myself. <laughs> I use all our skincare and hair care. I I pick brands that I believe in with like similar qualities, a really clean formulation, different function perhaps. Um, and you know, I choose my brands wisely. I ask a lot of questions, I give them a good run for their money, and then I like generally commit and I and I stay with them for a while. Can you share some of the brands? I feel like I trust you now. I want to buy all the brands that you're buying. Well, I love like Dr. Bronner's products. Yeah. Like they're such a theirs. great company yeah. and yeah, there's a few other ones, but I'll keep those. I, okay. I, do, I do a small rotation, but I would definitely like vouch for like 
the Dr. Bronner's product line. Yeah, they love their stuff. And Walita is also really great. Mm -hmm. They're a German company. They make great products as well. Can you share a mistake that you made during your time at Lush and, and what you learned about it or from it? I think the biggest mistake... I make and I've made it before and I wouldn't say that I'm 100% clean and improving on it is that I don't get ahead of things quite in the way that I should because Lush went through these periods of incredible growth and we were breaking supply chains. Our suppliers were like running out. We'd have these, we had this black pots emergency years ago that we are going into Christmas. We were running a black pot supply chain out of Asia and all of a sudden we have a quality problem. Like all our black pots are leaching blue dye into the product. And so that's not good. <laughs> Christmas time, our shops are getting, like this is when we're building all the inventory. Now I have no black pots, like our major seller through Christmas. And we got on a plane within two days of finding out the product was happening and went to see the supplier. And... This was kind of in the early days of really detailed ethical buying, um, was that we had not done enough diligence around who those suppliers were and what their capacity was, around how much could they produce. It turned out they had just, because we had always had this mandate of 100% post-consumer recycled plastic, they started running out because they couldn't keep up with us. They didn't have enough, they didn't know where our business was growing, so we kept growing and growing and growing, and we, I guess, forgot to tell them about that. <laughs> And so they couldn't get enough material on their side, so they started putting in whatever. And then, obviously, that doesn't work in a luxury cosmetics yeah. product. That's bad. So we had that was a nightmare, but it was very stressful, but we all survived. How would you handle the situation? We recalled all the product. We had to buy all the materials again. It was very expensive. Um, we were flying in black pots from Japan from our supplier there, so it was a very... It was expensive, and one thing that I'll always remember about that experience, because it was very stressful, but my CEO, at the end of it, when it was all over, like Mark Wolverton saying, hey, you handled it really well in the grand scheme of things. And so there, I think there's a two-prong of like learning of like, oh, that was a mistake, and to, you know, always remember your learnings when there's a mistake, but also I feel like I not that I could have prevented that problem, but always thinking forward of like not necessarily where your business will be tomorrow, but to have a longer term view of even further than that. And like, what can you do to like reduce the pain and suffering that may come in the interim? And it's hard to predict everything, but I also know if I had a different conversation, if we had been having different conversations with our suppliers at that point and sharing more about what was happening for us, um, I think maybe we could have prevented that. And now we bring all the supply chains as close to North America mm -hmm. as possible. So now that all that supply chain is out of, like, in in Canada and the United States, mm -hmm. we have full traceability back on where the plastic, on our, where the recycled resin is even coming from. We work very closely with all our suppliers in that um, value chain. And so we learned a lot from it, but it was, yeah, that was a tough one. That I didn't enjoy that Christmas at all. Mm -hmm. Up next, the value of personal coaching and the crisis of confidence. You can connect with us at socialflyny.com and follow us on Instagram at Entrepreneistas. Check out all our latest episodes at entrepreneistapodcast.com.
A common theme from all of the guests we've interviewed on our podcast so far is that they've all relied on support from other women through groups. So we decided to start an Entrepreneurista Facebook group. Head on over to Facebook and search Entrepreneurista's. We really wanted to create a community for Entrepreneurista's to connect, share ideas, help each other solve problems, and learn from all of our collective experiences. If you join the group, it's really a safe space to talk about being an entrepreneur, sharing your wins, asking for help when needed, and we can't wait to meet you so we can learn and grow together. Heather, so you're definitely an intrapreneurista within your organization. You have grown in your career over the past 10 years. Can you share more about your role? I know you share that you do a lot of coaching with your team and really how that's evolved over the years. I really believe in personal coaching. I think development is something you have to like own for yourself. Like no one's going to develop you. You like you have to actively like seek it out. And that's something I really try to live by all the time. And the coach I work with often reminds me that when we're there on like the edges of our comfort zone and there's lots of discomfort and we're not happy and it's, you know, things feel hard, even like emotionally that it's okay and all is fine and I'm fine and that you can like lean in it lean into it and just be in that discomfort and that is ultimately when your like deepest personal development um will happen and not to be shy um of those of those feelings and the discomfort do you share that with your team I tell my team I am coached or if I'm working with someone so I actually get a lot of coaching when I'm I like to call them like the crisis of confidence sometimes when you're leading people and you don't feel like you have a clear path and you don't necessarily know what you're doing those are hard internally with your team that's hard to admit or that you don't know the way forward you may not have the strategic vision that you once had you know that work needs to be done one thing I've learned is that I, you don't have to carry that all by yourself. And because I have such a great team and there's so much resilience amongst all of us that we can actually come together. And the best thing I can do is not feel like I have to take it all on myself, is to put it out to the group. And together we will come up with the best way forward. And I find a lot of comfort in that because it's kind of stressful if you're <laughs> like trying to get through things on your own. You mentioned before that you've had a lot of members on your team for many years now. Can you share some of your secrets to retaining your team and really um, helping them grow in their careers as well? I think it's around like deeply caring about people because at the end of the day, like we spend so many working hours together um, that you have to care and it can't be inauthentic. It has to be like real. And, and so you have to, you know, if someone's having a health problem or is working on something, you have to, life has to work. And I, it's only because I experienced that from my manager at Lush is that overall everything has to come together. When people are healthy and whole, they'll do their best work. But when they're irritated by small little things, um, it doesn't really work. So I manage and lead that my people have a lot of autonomy I don't, I'm pretty much the opposite of a micromanager. Um, so you have to be fairly self-directed. And I feel like one thing I do screen when I have people on my team is that they can come in and run a program and they can go chart their path and lead what they're doing. My job is to remove the roadblocks along the way. How do you show your team that you care? 
I would say they all feel underappreciated at the moment. That would be one of my manager fails, is that sometimes I don't give enough positive feedback or credit to the, how hard people work to make things happen and the extra effort um, they put in. I think that's an area that I could also work on. And I think, it, and so I'm spending more time with people like interpersonally and like just checking in and, you know, caring about the small, trying to, to remember those small details of even on the small project or what's happening for them personally, like the small dates of in people's lives that actually are significant to them and maybe meaningless to other people, but something to remember. It definitely seems like you have a very demanding job, enjoyable job, but demanding job. How do you balance your work and your personal life? Or is balance a thing for you? I have a three-year-old son. So yeah, the working mom gig is like epically difficult and hard for sure. Um, When I was off on maternity leave, one thing I did was I carried my four-month-old baby on the Camino de Santiago and did a pilgrimage, my first pilgrimage. And then when he was 10 months old, I walked Kumano Kodo in Japan, which is a Shinto pilgrimage about the worship of the mountains and the air and the trees and the rivers. And there are many shrines along that pilgrimage that worship uh, women, travelers, and children. Wow. And I carried my son when he was 10 months on my back <laughs> over like four mountain passes. And so one thing after that year of in Canada, we're lucky, very fortunate, we have a year off and we're off on maternity leave. So after my year of sabbatical, as I called it, um, raising my son when he was a baby, is that I am determined to do a long walk every year until I die. Because there's something, I'm a runner and triathlete, cyclist. Wow. There's something about walking in nature that is unusually grounding and peaceful. And I say you have to go for at least five days for the busy working people who like don't can't take a month off but even like three to four days of walking of grounding in nature I took my son to Iceland last year and it was small things like we were petting the moss on the rocks and we would squeal with joy when a bird flew overhead and it's like those moments for me that like really ground around like what are we here for And the deepest connection, like, with my son, because when you're traveling with a small child, all you can do is be, like, really present to them. Yes. (laughs) That is how it is. But it's also, like, experiencing the world in a different way that's, like, experiencing it all over again. And I would say that is my my wonder. I'm really dedicated to that um, practice every year. And I have a meditation practice and an exercise protocol and eating well and all the other stuff that (laughs) we can do to stay healthy and grounded um, through our busy lives. But that's one thing I do on a annual basis. You mentioned that you have to travel a lot for work. How often are you traveling for work? Uh, Right now, I'd say 50% of the time. And how do you incorporate, you know, your meditation practice when you're kind of always on the go in um, different countries? Do you incorporate it or is it something that you always... Headspace uh, (laughs) has an amazing business travel. (laughs) Medication. So I do that on aircraft a lot. So it's not the perfect setting um, for things. But it is, you know, it is just get time when, when you can and forgive yourself when it doesn't happen. And that's all fine. But I know from my own practice that when I get my habits come out of place... Um, that I miss it and I there's yeah. definitely it's I'm definitely more challenged internally where it's like oh yeah I just need to go away and 
sit quietly for somewhere for 20 minutes and then I'll be cool. And 20 minutes, like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, it's like irrelevant in our, yeah. in, in our work now. So it is, and maybe it's just before bed or right before I wake up. Sometimes it's five minutes in the middle of the workday. Do you have a favorite place to travel for work? I feel very fortunate. I've experienced places that you would never go to under normal circumstances that are just like outstandingly beautiful. Um, and I haven't been back. I, some of our, in recent years, like the Argan forest of Morocco is an incredible ecosystem. The trees only grow there in the foothills of the Atlas Mountains. And that's where all the Argan oil in the world comes from, which is a big, really popular beauty ingredient. That forest is incredible. The community, Berber communities there, the women that keep the villages alive and look after the children are incredible. We've been to the where the Amazon meets the Atlantic Ocean in Brazil, in the state of Pará, mm. where they call it the sweet waters, where the rivers meets the ocean. And it's just an incredible ecosystem. And you would never go there under normal circumstances, but it's something to experience. I would love to look through your phone and all of your photos. <laughs> I'm very fortunate that we get to go to really beautiful places. Mm. And I, you do check that privilege every once in a while. Do you have a favorite mantra or quote that you live by? I couldn't think of one, honestly, for this time because it changes so frequently for me. But like, in recent weeks, I'm going with, like, all is well. I love that. All is well, yes. And <laughs> what would you say is something that you're grateful for every day? I'll start crying. I'm so emotional these days. So I have... This is, like, a bit of a... It will sound silly, but I have gone through a difficult time personally recently and you know many things like fertility struggles or things like that is like really difficult for women and one thing I have deep gratitude for is I have a workplace that is safe that I can come in and if I look at people and I burst into tears that's cool <laughs> and it's fine and there's no there's no shame around that and like and someone one conversation with someone like right off the bat in the day just to brighten your day just takes all that pressure off and so I feel an enormously grateful that I have incredible colleagues and an incredible team that make it safe. And of course, we always have gratitude for our children because they yeah. teach us a billion things. <laughs> I'm a much better buyer from negotiating with my three-year-old. <laughs> I'll have to learn all the, the secrets from you. My baby's seven months old, so oh, I have coming. a little, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that you wish you knew when you first started your career at Lush that you know now but you didn't know back then you wish you knew it I think it is to like never never underestimate like what delegating can do for you and that it's something I don't want to say that women were particularly sometimes I think as women we think that doing it all is like a better approach but it's actually not and your team feels better when you tell them what to do and give them some deliverables and that you feel good about and they to share with them and that you trust that they're competent to go off and do that. I think if I were to do it over again, I would have like mastered that earlier because I think it's still something I'm working on and that I struggle with a little bit because I just think there's an expectation that, you know, we have to go like strength and like how good are you is based on how much work you can do, which is not true at all. Um, and I don't think that's the expectation. I think that's something that we've artificially created in ourselves. 
And lastly, what does being an entrepreneurista mean to you? I think it's someone who's charting their own course in their own company and that you can have this incredible playground in a business and make it your own and to own it. I love that. Well, we have a special surprise for you as a thank you for being on the podcast today, your entrepreneurista bag. So you can open it up. There's some fun stuff in there for you. Thank you so much. What a gift. Thank you for joining us. Where can everyone find you, follow you? And of course, those looking to buy Lush products, where can they find them? So we have uh, LushUSA.com and Lush.ca uh, for Canada. Um, I am on LinkedIn, and that is my predominant form of social media. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll send everyone over to your, to your LinkedIn. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so much fun and definitely really special learning about you and your career and all about Lush. And there's actually a Lush right near my apartment, so I want to head over there now and buy some more products. Awesome. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Thanks for listening. Founders are always asking us, what has been the secret to our success building multiple seven-figure businesses? Do you want to know how? It's our community. We created the Entrepreneurs League for founders like you. Our members have access to everything we've used to grow our businesses over the past 10 plus years. To learn more and get on the wait list for when doors are open again, head over to entrepreneurista.com. That's entrepreneurista.com to get on the wait list.